Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And my guest today is Indiana Attorney General Steve Carter. If you have questions or comments for us today, please phone 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Steve, welcome. Hello. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back. I spent a few of my younger years in the community here at IU, so I'm glad to be back. Yeah, we're glad glad to have you here. We have... uh, you know, lots of different directions we can go. The attorney general in the state represents uh, Indiana's legal needs, so you would represent the state in court, and also you look out for consumer needs of citizens. I, I would imagine we'll spend most of our time on the consumer end of things here, but but before we do that, why don't you talk about uh, you know, what you might represent the state, um, the state in the. Uh, the the tobacco settlement. You were involved in that, correct? Yeah. The attorney general is the state's chief lawyer. So we do all the things that attorneys do on behalf of their clients. We do them on behalf of state government. We review all contracts. We review rules before they are implemented to make sure they are legal. Uh, we represent the state agencies in court sometime when the state when the the state is sued. We represent the taxpayers in essentially defending the state treasury. Uh, we also issue legal opinions from time to time. Uh, we represent the judiciary from time to time. A judge uh, will be sued, and we represent that branch of government. We also represent the legislature if there are challenges to the constitutionality of actions that they take. Uh, But much of our work relates to representing the executive branch of state government. We have about 125 lawyers. I know 125 lawyers anywhere is a scary thought to many people, (laughs) but uh, we feel they do pretty good work for the state of Indiana. The one area that uh, we have a more of a policy role is that in the area of consumer protection. And as with many AG offices around the country, that's an area where the legislature has defined our authority. In Indiana, the attorney general's office is a statutory one. It's not a constitutional office. So our authority actually is um, defined by the statutes that the legislature has passed. Mm -hmm. Now, while you're talking, it struck a question with me. If if the legislature is um, considering – Laws that you might or that might be considered unconstitutional um, would those come before you? Would they ask you for your opinion on those before they enacted those laws? Uh, not real often. Uh, of course, that's something they could do. Each of the legislative caucuses in the two legislative bodies have their own attorneys who advise them during the legislative session. And then Legislative Services, which is a nonpartisan agency, has attorneys who advise legislators. And they should all be looking at legal issues on legislation that's proposed. But if they do present it to us, we try to be uh, helpful with our insight. And I think that's appropriate because if a law is passed, uh, the attorney general is the one that would have to defend that if it's legally challenged. So it's in everybody's interest to get that right up front. Right. 855-0811 is our phone number here in Bloomington. 877-285-9348 is the phone number from outside of the local calling area. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Steve Carter is my guest today. He is the Indiana Attorney General. Um, I've been to your website. I looked at it this morning uh, in preparation for today. It's a great website. Our hotline reporter, Becky Robbins, says she uses it all the time. Um, so I would, I would recommend that to any of our listeners out there who might want to know more about some of the consumer issues that, that we all face. Let's go through a, a few of those. And, and one of them, there, there's a lot of money out there that people could claim, that, Indiana Unclaimed. That's right. IndianaUnclaimed.com is our website for uh, the Unclaimed Property Program. It always helps to define, first of all, what unclaimed property is and what it isn't. It is primarily financial accounts. Uh, These could be um, bank accounts. It could be amounts left with utility companies as deposits. It could be insurance company proceeds or premiums. Let's say somebody had insurance on a house and they 
had paid it 12 months in advance, but they moved out a month before that coverage was over, and somehow that balance didn't get credited to them. That's an example of different kinds of accounts that people might have an ownership interest in. It's not furniture. It's not real estate. It's not automobiles. Um, The one physical type of property, each year we get about 500 safe deposit box contents turned over to us. Financial institutions, again, have people's accounts, and they also have these safe deposit box uh, materials. So they turn those over to us. Uh, People can claim their contents from those boxes, but obviously often it's turned over because somebody has passed on and isn't in a position to do that. Maybe the family members, the executor didn't know that they had that property. So people can come forward and claim that property, but if they do not, eventually it is sold, and then we have an account with the amount of that money for whatever the property brought at the sale. People can then claim or heirs can claim that amount of property. We have a lot of it. We have over $300 million, and we're working hard to make people aware of that. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you just, you know, there's a name on here I know. You should know where they are. Why don't you give that to them? Actually, people, businesses, even local units of government have to make a claim. So we've got to try to get the word out about the program. Last year, we returned over $54 million to people in Indiana. Here in Monroe County, I think we were over five or $600,000. I was hopeful in this four-year term we could get over $100 million returned to people. We're going to hit that sometime this year. Prior to me becoming attorney general, the most the state had ever done was $7 million in one year. So we've made a lot of progress but when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars waiting there, there's a lot of ways, lot, long way to go too. It, it, how long will that money be there? I mean, it will be there in? Uh, is there a time limit that people have to claim their money? That, that's right. The, uh, according to our statutes, people have up to 25 years to claim the property, and then they lose their right to make that claim. Now, remember when the uh, property is held by what we call a holder, such as a bank financial institution, those types of accounts are held for five years before they come to us. So, uh, you know, in reality, people there have 30 years to claim their property, either from the holder or then from the state of Indiana. There are some different time periods for different types of properties. Unclaimed wages are to be turned over after a single year of holding it by the uh, employer. I also always think that that might be relevant in a college community because you have students moving in, moving out, short-term employment. Maybe they thought they got their last check, but maybe they'd actually worked a day or two into the next pay period. And eventually that gets turned over to the state as an unclaimed wage. So we've, we've got to work to get the word out. And uh, often it's property that people don't even know they had. A few years ago, uh, we have a lot of people familiar with the Anthem Insurance Company. Anthem went from being a policyholder-owned company to a stock company. People that had owned a or had been covered by the company through a policy some years ago actually then received a small stock distribution. But it was many years after the fact, so the company's notices went to a lot of addresses that were no longer effective. So that's an example where it's not just people being forgetful, losing track of their assets, but actually maybe didn't even know the asset didn't come into existence until they were, you know, removed to another uh, address. Yeah, we could all use some of that, I guess. It can be Christmas in July. (laughs) People go to indianaunclaimed.com. It's easy to start the claims process online. You can do that via the website. Ultimately, we do have to have uh, identification. Uh, to us, we we don't have people. We, our office is actually in Greenwood, Indiana, uh, but people don't have to come into the office. Usually, all of that can be transacted. So, uh, is that three hundred million dollars earning interest? And and if so, where does it go? Well, it doesn't earn the tax the uh, the uh, claimant any interest. So, if you've got money there, go ahead and get it. It's not going to be any worth any more a year or two from now. Mm-hmm. Actually, a few years ago, the state was in pretty dire financial straits, so they started using the money all the time. The money used to go into the um, 
a uh, common school fund and there was a process where loans were then made to, to educational institutions from that fund. But that was changed a few years ago because the state was trying to balance its checkbook. So now essentially all the money is used by the state to help its cash balance. Mm-hmm. Now in theory, that's an obligation. Again, if everybody stepped up at one time and said we want our $300 million, legislature would have to go back and move some of it from other accounts to make that happen. We know in reality that's not going to all happen at one time. And we keep about half a million dollars in the account. But again, as money goes out, we have other money coming in. And that's about enough to operate. So we don't. But if if we made large payments, you know, for a week or two, we might have to halt the amount that we're shipping over to the general fund. But that's all by statute. Uh, It's not discretionary by our office. It's something the legislature decided to do to help uh, balance the checkbook. Right. Okay. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Um, another issue that um, uh, I know you got involved in this a, a few years ago, but it's, it's with the gasoline prices. And, um, you know, gasoline is going up and down in price, mostly up, but now I guess it's on its way down a little bit. Have you seen any price gouging? Are you concerned about those kind of issues? You know, we're always concerned about it because consumers are concerned about it. And it did first come to our office after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Somebody walked into my office and said, you know, they're saying that the price of gas around Martinsville is $5 a gallon. I said, that's crazy. Well, we started to check out and found that uh, some retailers had uh, raised their prices a large amount. Wholesalers actually had raised the price that day, but there were some that got way over the line. We had over 3,000 complaints. We investigated 125 stations. 57 were found to have, in our opinion, excessively priced their fuel, and we got all that money returned to consumers. I did learn at that time a lot of people buy their gas with credit cards. Not that hard to credit that consumer's account uh, for the excess amount, and uh, that that worked out. But that was truly a case where the price had not gone up everywhere, but there had just been some pricing decisions by about two percent of our state stations that were uh, not wise, and really our consumers were being victimized at the same time our country was being victimized on the East Coast. Since that time, we've pr- tried to be very attentive and monitor uh, gasoline prices. But what we've seen, and we've seen that today, is not a problem in Indiana or a community-specific problem. We've seen an overall price level hike. When that happens, we do get complaints from consumers. They don't like prices going up. They don't like the volatility. The complaints do tend to level off, though, frankly, and go away when the price settles down a little, even if it settles at a higher level than any of us would like to pay. We've had fewer uh, complaints this year than we had last year. We do try to – we track prices throughout the state. We we have discovered that prices are a little bit cheaper factually on Wednesdays than they are on Saturdays. Hmm. You can get a little better deal if you buy your gas in the middle of the week in most areas of the state. Uh, Some are a little bit higher. Evansville is one of the cheaper places in the state to buy uh, gasoline. So we we do have a lot of information on the website. We try to remove some of the mystery of gasoline pricing. Uh, But again, uh, retailers have the ability to price at whatever the level they think is competitive so long as it uh, would not – be a truly excessive amount. The governor has the authority to declare an an energy emergency. And in that case, then we can investigate overall price gouging. But without that in place, our job is to see if there's any price fixing going on between stations, if there's deceptive pricing, if people are actually paying more for it than 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 it was advertised on the signs. Those are issues that we can address. Mm -hmm. We've always – it seems like we always uh, have questions and concerns here in Bloomington that prices are 
higher here than in other parts of the state. Do you get those kind of complaints and have you looked into that? You know, we have and uh, the, the price is a little bit higher than some other communities. It's not necessarily the highest in the state. You know, we've tracked things in South Bend and Gary and Fort Wayne in the northern part of the state. They do tend to be higher. Bloomington is does tend to be higher than Evansville and tends to be higher than uh, Terre Haute. Uh, some of the explanation for that is probably the um, um, closeness to distribution of uh, product, and Evansville happens to be closer to some uh, pipelines that make their fuel a little bit uh, cheaper. So you do have pockets where it's you know maybe a little more difficult to get to, and the cost is a little bit higher. Uh, that we do see that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And noon at indiana.edu. Steve Carter, Indiana's Attorney General, is my guest today. We have a couple of emails that have come in. So Mary, my partner, Mary Catherine Carmichael, usually reads the email. So I'm, I'm oh, doing it all today. Well, she's, she's off today. Do you, do you get her paycheck too? Yeah, I do. Well, I do. Get that extra cup of coffee. Right? Yeah, right. Extra glass of water. <laughs> okay. uh, <laughs> So the first uh, email is, what is your annual budget for public education ads? How do you measure the cost effectiveness of those ad programs? And would you be willing to limit such ads to times when there are no election campaign for your position in progress? Um, boy, there are a lot of questions there. Yeah, first I, I of all, review them if you want. I don't then. think we have any uh, – I'm trying to think of which ads you'd be talking about. Uh, probably the ones that have the most profile are the unclaimed property ads, which do not mention my name in them. They could be used by the next attorney general. Uh, They don't promote me. They do promote the unclaimed property division. Uh, We have spent several hundred thousand dollars on that over the past few years. That is different than prior uh, AGs in the office. Again, last year we returned over $54 million to people. We've got over $300 million of their money. So I think we've got a responsibility to try to let people know about that program, and that's why we've made the decision to do that, and it has involved several hundred thousand dollars. Now, we've had pretty good leaps in progress as far as people getting their money back there. Before I became AG, the state's highest year was about $7 million. We progressively worked that up over to $20 million, and then last year hit the high. I think we hit some, got some low-hanging fruit. I don't know that every year it will be $50 million, but I think the return has been very good on that if you just look at those numbers. The other thing that happens as we raise the awareness of the unclaimed property program um, we have more holders who recognize that they've got the legal obligation to turn property over to the state. So while we're getting more money out to people, we're also getting more money in, and hopefully eventually that will either get to the, the people that have it or, again, the state uses it if they don't step up and claim it. So that's a good public policy result, and that's enhanced by the awareness of the program. I'm not familiar with other ads that uh, – that we have on the unclaimed property. Some people may also see the ads that are published, the actual listings of unclaimed property. The legislature actually requires us to do that uh, twice every year, and you'll see that probably back in the legal notices section of the newspaper. So there are hundreds of thousands of dollars spent uh, with our newspapers around the state showing those properties. Those only show the ones that we received in the past year. So it's important for people not to look at that and see if their name's not on that list think, well, I wouldn't have any unclaimed property. They really need to go to indianaunclaimed.com. That's where we'd have last year's property that came to us and all those properties that came in the past 24 years. Mm-hmm. So I think the... Uh, the point is a relevant one about people using um, advertising public funds if they're promoting an individual 
Um, but I don't think that that's the case with what we've done. Okay. We have a second email here, and it, it, this is a, it says, were you given full opportunity to help draft the contract for the 75-year lease of the interstate highway? If so, were there particular clauses you added? Were there others that were not accepted but might be considered for other long-term outsourcing contracts? Were you involved with that? Um, minimally. Um, it was not originated in our office. I'm trying to think back about when we did uh, become involved with it. We do review state contracts for form and legality, so at some point we would have uh, reviewed that. probably would have been after legislation had passed, after there was a proposal. Yeah, we would have reviewed that. And the reason the Attorney General does that is if you find something that is uh, not in accordance with the law. It's important that it be brought up before a contract is executed and people start to rely on that. So we would have approved the contract at some point. We also defend litigation. We were one of, we represented not the uh, toll road entity, which is a separate body, corporate and politic, but there were a couple of officials. I remember the state treasurer was named as a defendant. So we did appear in the case and, and assisted with the defense of that matter. The, the contract was found to be legal. So I guess the legal review prior to being an act, being uh, executed was uh, legitimate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's go back to uh, a few of the other things that uh, – a few of the many other things that, that uh, you're involved with cons- with consumer protection. One is a sex offender registry, which is op- uh, operated out of your office. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, well, several years ago, uh, Indiana adopted the sex offender registry and then as technology developed, we thought rather than have this information in a drawer in a – sheriff's office or a police department. Let's put it up on the website. So the state did that. We had several legal challenges to that. We defended those all the way through both the federal and state court uh, systems and and were successful in that defense. So we kept the registry in place. But we've worked pretty hard on customer service in my office. We tried to take a page from the do not call law where we feel we had a lot of public participation and and good quality customer service. So I wanted to reach another level of uh, customer contact with information, a sex offender registry. So we came up with a way that people can actually sign up to receive an email notice. Now, rather than going to the registry and having to put a particular name in or put your address in or an address in wonder whether somebody's there or not. You can actually put your address in and then define what area you have of interest. In other words, if you want to know if somebody's living within a half mile or mile or two miles of your home who is on the sex offender registry, you can put your address in and you will then receive an email notice anytime that database changes. So I think that's helpful rather than expecting citizens to go to the website, you know, once a month or once every two weeks. They're going to forget sometimes. Information is going to change between those time periods. People can actually sign up and get an affirmative notice anytime that database changes. Somebody moves or starts to work within that uh, radius. So we think that's a good customer service. The sex offender registry now has photos on it, so you can actually print a photo off on a computer and show it to your child if somebody's in the community that you uh, want them to pay, pay special attention to. Mm-hmm. How many people are on the registry? Do you have any idea off the top of your head? I, I'm ballpark figure 10,000. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a large number. So another, it's another service that's on the, it's, on the website. It's surprising. Often people who haven't been to the website, once they do that, they can either do it with uh, our office's website or they can go to the Indiana Sheriff's Offender uh, Registry website. They can uh, get to that information. They'll be surprised what they'll find. All right. Um, I'm going to go with this email um, and then we're going to take a short break. The the email, I think that this might be based on some sort of a bad premise. The email says, recently eight of your fellow attorney generals were fired. Why do you think they were fired and were you ever worried about your job? This person's talking about federal attorneys. Yeah, we can explain that, I think. 
he's probably referring to the U.S. attorneys who would be federal prosecutors. In the U- United States government, the Department of Justice is an agency that reports to the president. The president appoints the U.S. attorney general. They have many offices, but one of them that they have is the office of U.S. US attorneys. We have, uh, I, I think it's 92 of them throughout the United States. In Indiana, we have two. We have the Northern District and the Southern District. Each of the districts has a U.S. attorney. Eight of them uh, were terminated uh, over the past few months, and that's where there's been a, a major controversy as to whether that was done properly or not. That's all on the federal side. I'm the state attorney general in uh, state government, so we're really not affected by that. Um, and your but position I, is elected. Also, yeah, my position is elected, and and uh, but as a lawyer, and we do have some contact with the federal justice system. Uh, you know, I've been watching that with great interest and and very concerned about it because I think what's happened is undermine some confidence in that agency. I do think there's turmoil there at this point. Uh, Some of the people that involved, you know, obviously the president has the right uh, to appoint the attorney general and the U.S. attorneys serve at the discretion of the president. So legally, uh, the president and the and the attorney general can have people in the positions that they choose. However, when somebody's in the position and they're doing the job well, which it seems like most of these people were to seek a change can be unsettling. There were some allegations then that they'd not been doing their jobs well and the ability to to support those statements has has been pretty spotty so far. So it's it's pretty unfortunate. It's unsettling for the law enforcement community and certainly could have been handled uh, much differently. I'll also tell our uh, our emailer and all the rest of our listeners that Susan Brooks, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Indiana, was our guest on a noon edition. I'm not sure what the date was, probably about four or five weeks ago. And all those programs are archived. So if she, the emailer wants to find out more about what Susan Brooks had to say about that, Um, She can go to our archives here at WFIU and find that program. It's easy to find. All right. We've hit break time. So um, I'll give the phone numbers one more time before we we go out. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Steve Carter, the Attorney General of Indiana, is our guest. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info WFIU is a media sponsor for Juneteenth and for the Bloomington Pops. Juneteenth celebrating African-American freedom while encouraging self-development and respect for all cultures. The parade starts Saturday morning at 10 at the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center, ends at Bryan Park with activities continuing until 4 p.m., Saturday night, it's Picnic with the Pops with music, entertainment for kids of all ages, and a fireworks show, an opportunity to bring a picnic basket and enjoy the patriotic music. And that takes place on the lawns of Ivy Tech Bloomington. Gates open at 5. The Bloomington Pops concert begins at 8. More about both these and many other items on our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with my guest today, Indiana Attorney General Steve Carter. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. The first topic I want to get into the second half of the program is is the do not call list and telephone privacy. That was – it's been a big deal during your – your administration. Um, how's that going? 
Well, I think it's going great. I think it's an area where Indiana's a leader. It is something that I emphasized when I first sought the office and I was trying to be listen to consumers and think about issues that could impact a lot of them and and it seemed to be that a lot of people were fed up. You know, the te- what led to this was the advances in technology. We have always had telemarketing ever since we've had telephones, but the advances in technology and software would have got to where a telemarketer, instead of calling one number and trying to reach somebody and then hanging up and then working on another number, but where you could program the number of phones dialed and at one time, and you could set that to be five phones or 10 or 20 or 25, and then people would just pick up the first one that was answered, and then the other calls phones would go dead. But all those people had been interrupted by the ringing of the phone for something that they really didn't want. Uh, we did some surveys and found that this was something that people uh, wanted and, and pursued that with the Indiana legislature. It was a bipartisan initiative. We had the legislature. Now, there were a lot of telemarketers who lobbied very heavily, and I'd say that uh, many of my friends in Indianapolis law firms were well compensated to represent the the lobbying of the telemarketing to try to k- keep this from becoming law. But we got past that when we could get it in play where the public could could see that there was something there that could benefit them and their legislators heard about that. It moved forward, and I thank the legislature for doing that. I think our implementation has gone pretty well. We've got between 60 and 70 percent of the state's residential telephone numbers on the list. There isn't any other state that can claim that level of interest. We've surveyed people. Ninety-eight percent of those surveyed after they'd been on the list for three months said, yeah, they're getting fewer phone calls. And uh, they're pretty happy about that. That's, of course, raised their level of expectation now when they get some numbers. And, and it doesn't cover every phone call, not everyone. Uh, a few do get through the screen. There, there are a few exemptions to the calls. People are unhappy when their privacy is interrupted. The other thing that uh, we've noticed is sometimes when they get these automated phone calls, the robocalls, people said, well, you've done well with the do not call law, but can you do something about that? Well, in fact, Indiana had passed a separate law many years ago dealing with the automated phone calls. So we've been aggressive about enforcing that law also. What's that law say? Because I, I mean, I know I've gotten a lot of automated phone calls. Well, it basically says that they can't make the automated phone call if it's not preceded by a live voice and there's essentially not a chance for the consumer to say, no, I don't want that call. So if it's a straight automated call, um, you know, it's probably in violation of that statute. And if people submit complaints to us, we will pursue those. We've enforced it. Uh, it's also one that covers political calls. Now, our do not call law does not cover political calls. So during campaigns, if there are volunteers calling on behalf of campaigns, political parties, they can do that. And I think the legislature wanted to encourage that type of volunteer uh, activity around election time, but the robocalls where it's less personal, more calls are made, uh, you know, and it's more of a commercial enterprise. It's a cheap way to try to reach a lot of people. I think a lot of them are reached in a way that they're annoyed at, um, but but that's what this statute was trying to address, and it's still in place, and we're going to enforce it. Good. I know I've gotten some mortgage company calls recently, so that are well, robocalls. I know okay. that. <laughs> Uh, okay, we have a couple of phone calls. I want after we get to the phones. I hopefully we'll come back to what we can do about faxes and emails. But. Yeah, I do appreciate you bringing up a lot of these consumer issues because so many of them. It's important to have a preventative approach. Yeah. Once somebody's been scammed, if they've been taken advantage of, it's hard to recover their loss later on. Maybe yeah. hard to track them down. They don't know who to turn to to help. So the more consumer education, we try to do that, a lot of that with our website. And this program is helping with that. Too. Great. Okay. Well, let's go to Don. Don? Hi. Hey, Don. I guess as I was just listening to what you just said about we were once scammed when we first came to Bloomington 30 uh, years ago, and or 33 years ago now. And <clears throat> sort of ever since then, we've been very uh, sensitive about the solicitations and particularly the telephone solicitations. And several times I've had uh, since we've been, we've been since the no call 
uh, law was passed in Indiana, we immediately signed up for it, and federal, federal no-call as well. And there's been some, a couple times things have gotten through the system, and I've talked with your staff, and I must, must admit I've been very pleased uh, with their help and uh, con um, efforts. And one of the things I, that particularly was that they had a telephone number which was basically a dummy number that they were operating from some other number, the sort of almost the same way that a lot of the uh, email scams operate, and um, with the uh, spam mailing, where it goes through all sorts of right, right. Uh, roundabout ways to Hard make to tracking difficult. But the thing that kind of comes back to is one of the, besides the telemarketing companies themselves, uh, the telecommunication companies. Um, and talking with the consumer affairs people for um, what used to be Ameritech, uh, Southwestern Bell, now AT&T, uh, they get sort of the, oh, uh, we're not, at our end, we're not responsible for this. That we sell services to these companies, and we profit, too, by selling um, telecommunication services to the uh, some of these very unscrupulous uh, individuals. And it's sort of like they want to wash their hands. It sounds like I assume they got their lobbyists in Washington and Indianapolis and every other state capital under the sun. But I, I almost wonder if another angle to go after the particularly the tra problem telemarketers is to put some pressure onto the, um, the Ma Bells of the world um, that are also part of the uh, process. Okay, Steve, reaction? Well, I, I will say some of the telecommunications companies were some of the major telemarketers also, and they, mm -hmm. they did fight this type of legislation and because they argued that they wouldn't be able to sell as many products to their, comp their customers that they uh, uh, you know, wanted to be able to do that, particularly their uh, existing customers. And we were able to fight that off in Indiana because when you open something up to contacting existing customers, people have a lot of different business relationships. So that we're able to plug that hole, and that's a hole that's not plugged with the federal law. So if anybody is listening, if you want protection from the telemarketers, please sign up on the Indiana list. It'll give you more help than if you sign up on the federal list that came after. You know, you're uh, attacking an instrumentality, the people that uh, develop a product or instrumentality that some people then misuse, is a challenging issue. Now, obviously, if the purveyor of that device, the product, the instrumentality, in this case a telephone, knows that a vast majority of the calls coming from a certain area are in the nature of a scam, uh, they need to be helpful and they can be helpful with investigative authorities as we pursue that. But then when you, if you try to – so I think it relates to the specific knowledge they have about a specific activity as to how much they should be held accountable. It's going to be pretty hard if they're unknowing as to how they're – phone might be being used to assume that you could attribute liability that, to them just because they happen to be the uh, one that put that instrumentality out there where people could, could use it. So it's a legitimate thing to look at, but the remedy will probably only be available in specific cases. Well, I guess one of the things that strikes me, in, including talking with your staff when we tried to figure out who, where these calls were coming from and who was responsible that um, and the fact that what you just mentioned about the fact that they were also the telecommunication industry companies um, were lobbying in support of the industry um, suggests that they're not entirely being entirely honest about not knowing. Uh, it seems a little incredible line of thinking on their part to say, oh, uh, we don't know who is buying our products and using our products. Uh, they have been among the leaders in uh, using computer technology going back to when I was a little kid. Uh, so they know who uses their product. They know how many calls are made. They can track that information down if they would want to. 
but if they don't want to and just want to continue to make profit, uh, they're going to say one thing publicly to the consumer and to, but meanwhile, be siding with their um, interest. Don, we're going to okay, yeah, I'm going to let Steve uh, respond to that, and then we're going to move on. And well, they it, certainly need to be cooperative with the law enforcement officials when we're doing investigations, and we'll try to hold them to the requirements to do that via the uh, consumer invest uh, civil investigative demands, which are like subpoenas that we submit to them. They do need to cooperate, and we'll try to uh, do the best to, the, to make sure that they do. Sounds like uh, I mean the, what you were. We're arguing, suggesting is that holding somebody responsible because they've created a legal product for somebody who uses it illegally is a difficult thing to do. I mean, you think about – You know, it's the issue like think about automobiles. Mm-hmm. You know, they're used lawfully by the vast majority of the instances they're used. But from time to time, they're not. How much should the maker of that product be held accountable I think the caller's got a good point, though. I think the the uh, telecommunications company, in many ways, is in a unique position to provide information that can lead to a successful prosecution. So it's one we need to zero in yeah. on. Okay, let's go back to the phone. And Linda's next. Linda. Hello. Hi. Thanks for your patience. Uh, funny enough, this phone is about to go dead, so I have to talk <laughs> fast and let you answer. Um, I don't know if you've addressed this. Or not, and if you have, I apologize. But I'm getting um, lots of calls uh, all 24 hours uh, from some company that is, or some place that is obviously not local. And I, is there a place on your website where I can report this number? Uh, yes, you can file a complaint with us online. Uh-huh. Uh, in the Attorney General's website. You can also uh, call us. The uh, um, number for filing a complaint is area code 812-355-5915. Okay. Yes, or you can um, go to the Attorney General's website. There's a telephone icon you can click on there. You're on the Indiana list, is that right? That's right. Okay, Which that's has good. helped tremendously. Yeah, well, it sounds like somebody's gotten through a crack, though, so we want to go after them. So get that uh, filed with us, and we'll pursue well, that. Well, I'm fairly certain it's one of those uh, robo-things because um, when I get to the telephone, it often stops ringing on maybe the second or third ring. And when I do answer it, um, it's often a deadline. Right. And then and then I tried calling that number back, and of course I got some bogus, um, you know, response that it, you can't. Yeah, if you have a phone number, that gives us something to go on. So uh-huh. we'll be happy to pursue that. Most of our uh, complaints we've been able to resolve successfully. Some of them are pending. We've uh, actually nailed about seven hundred telemarketers for penalties of over a million dollars. So, and we brought many others into compliance where there mm-hmm. hadn't been any financial penalties. But the only way we can for, enforce it is if we have help from people like you by getting us those complaints so we know where the problem is. Well, I'll be happy. To, it's, it's somewhat frightening. I, I, you know, I feel like somebody is almost stalking me because uh, they do it all, all hours. Well, with your personal uh, phone in your house, I think there is an expectation of privacy that's different than in other settings, and uh, this law has gone a long way to restoring people's privacy, but uh, where it's not not done that, we need to continue to work on it. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Linda, thanks a lot. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. If you're just joining us, uh, Indiana Attorney General Steve Carter is our guest today. Um, okay, telephones are one thing, faxes, emails, or something else. It seems like a, a lot of- We're making some progress on the faxes. The emails are tough, and I should just say up front, you know, it's pretty hard for a state attorney general to have to effectively address the email problem, primarily because so much of it comes not just from out of state. It comes from outside the United States where our jurisdiction, you know, is, is not effective. It's easy also to shut down an email address one day and create a new one and start operating the next day. 
So we can accept complaints, particularly the ones from over suggesting you send money from overseas and there's that relative of a monarchy in Africa or <laughs> We've somewhere all seen that them. Will, yeah. <laughs> will help you. We actually do forward those to the U.S. Secret Service, and they have had some successful prosecutions in foreign countries. So it's not a waste to submit those to us, but I have to be candid that for effective enforcement to occur, we've got to have the cooperation of both the United States government and national governments. And let me ask about that. Have you, do you know of many people in our state who have actually been scammed by those? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, there have been, and particularly the ones where they uh, sometimes are actually sent <coughs> – excuse me – where they are actually sent a check for an amount, and they say, this is your first payment on this. We need you to help us. Here, we're sending you a couple of thousand dollars. We need you to send us back, uh, you know, some money to help us get this further process, but as a show of our good faith. Those are the ones that people actually think they're legitimate. They try to cash them. They think it's going into the account. A few days later, after they've sent their money out, they find out that that was a bogus uh, check. So, um, unfortunately, it does happen. Please be alert. We also have these phishing scams where people are sending out emails trying to get your personal information. Be very careful about that. They may be posing as your financial institution. They may be saying, we've got some problems with your account. We need to verify some things. That's where they'll get your personal information. Please don't do that. They may even link you to a counterfeit site that looks very much like a legitimate financial institution. So be very careful. Your banks probably aren't going to do business that way. Pick up the phone and call them and make sure that they're the ones putting that out. How about just very quickly the faxes, unsolicited faxes? Faxes. We've got a new law in place and we are taking complaints now. It's a little different than you don't have to sign up on our list. You can be protected whether you're you, – you don't have to be on a list with our office. And basically, there are unsolicited faxes that come into Indiana, either in the home or the workplace. So small businesses can benefit from this, too, if people are tired of going in their office and overnight having had 10 or 15 vacation package faxes, hair growth products, mortgage you know deals, that kind of thing. Submit those complaints to us. We'll be after those. It does not cover if there's an existing business relationship. So if you've done business with somebody, they have the ability to continue to send those. So we're making progress on that front, too. The email is the, the toughest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to rely on uh, additional filters, you know, and again, international cooperation to, to really address that. One other issue I'd like to bring up very briefly, I know people are, you know, Indiana's moved to more gambling over the past few years, and we're relying on that for funding government more all the time. But it's important that we have integrity in that system if we're going to have it, and it's very careful as to watch these arrangements. There's one right now in northwest Indiana that is a horrible public policy, and I've got some help from Professor Pat Bode over at the law school where I'm a graduate of and we have other lawyers. I think we have about 30 lawyers who graduated from the law school here in my office, so we're happy about that. But this is one where the proceeds from the uh, riverboat, actually uh, three-quarters of 1% go to a private company for purposes of economic development in the city of East Chicago. But the argument that they've made when we've tried to audit that is that the private operator of the riverboat is a private company and this is a private corporation that the money's going to. Therefore, these are not public funds and you have no right to audit this. But literally $16 million has gone to this entity without any audits by the State Board of Accounts. And I think that really undermines the integrity of the gaming industry in Indiana we're trying to do something about that with a lawsuit, and I encourage people to be attentive uh, not only to that one but in other arrangements where, where gambling is expanding in Indiana. Okay. We have a couple of phone calls, and we've got about three minutes, so we'll try to get through both of them. Cynthia's first. Cynthia? Hello. Hi. Um, long story short, a, a few years ago I had uh, a, a bad experience between a 
uh, unscrupulous uh, real estate agent and a predatory lender. What is the state attorney general's office doing about predatory lending in Indiana now? We have a homeowner protection unit, and we pursue complaints, and often uh, they are pursued against uh, realtors, appraisers, uh, those professionals that are involved in the process. In Indiana, the way that licensing works is generally different professions are licensed by a board that is overseen by appointees by the governor. But if there are consumer complaints filed, those are investigated by the attorney general's office, presented to that board. They can sanction that professional then. They can uh, take away their license. They can reprimand them. They can suspend them. Uh, if it's home, I don't think this was home improvement fraud, but if it's in a general uh, consumer complaint, we address those also. Those, those, are one, those are ones then to see if the consumer protection laws relating to deceptive sales and practices have occurred. If it relates to a professional that's been in license, that's handled a little bit differently. But uh, the homeowner protection unit is the one that addresses that. All right, Cynthia. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. And Terry's next in line. Terry? Yes. Thank you. I have one just quick question. You've done so well with the do not call for the families and consumers. Can you do something for businesses? I work at a business, and two or three times a day we'll get a robocall or somebody offering something or another. Um, The do not call, the legislature made a decision not to interrupt business-to-business communication, so that's one you'll have to take up with the legislature. You know, it seems to me like it's bad business to contact somebody who doesn't want those phone calls, so you'd hope they would respect that. We do have a law against the robocalls, so you could file a complaint with us, and we'll review the facts, and, uh, you know, if it matches up with that law, we might be able to do something about that. Oh, great. All right, Terry. Thanks a lot. We have about 90 seconds to go. So are there other scams that come to your office, other things that you want to sort of warn consumers about? Well, in the uh, warm weather, home improvement fraud is one that we really want to alert people about because it seems to happen in the spring and summer months. Often, uh, you know, any home improvement contract of more than $150 has to be in writing. So if somebody comes to your house, be careful if you're being solicited, if you're being approached, if it's not something you initiated. Expect to have that contract in writing. If it's not in writing and it's more than $150 repair, they're violating Indiana law. Take your time. Don't be rushed into an immediate decision. Uh, Give yourself a chance to have a a friend, a relative, neighbor, help you sort through it. Obviously, if you've got a major project going on, we encourage people to get two or three bids. Be real careful about the ones where somebody says, I've been working down the street, I've got some extra product, I can give you a real special deal, but you've got to pay me right now and pay me cash. Uh, those are the ones to be careful of. Those are often targeted at senior citizens, and often they'll point out some place on the property that the senior can't get to. So we got to watch those. Okay. Thanks a lot to Steve Carter, Indiana's Attorney General. For producer Catherine Hageman and Aliyah Mood, who also helped out today, and engineer John Shelton, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.